Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, as I look back and have a listen to some of the highlights from previous shows throughout the year. In this episode, Teddy Jameson, Kirsten Innes, Rog Glass, Polly Clark, Alan Bissett and Yelly Reynolds all talk about their favourite teenage formative years read. In terms of your literary journey, if I take you on from your book from childhood, yeah. and it was more kind of favourite book from teenage formative years, and, and immediately I think like a lot of people, you, you realise how difficult this is because how do you choose just one book? Because there's a there's a never ending, you know, at that age, you're, you're like a sponge in terms of soaking up what you're reading, you know? Totally, totally. And I mean, I started off reading a lot of, as I say, genre fiction. I was really into um, science fiction as a, as a teenager. I loved J.G. Ballard's short stories, Brian Aldiss, Harlan Ellison, Philip K. Dick was a bit later. So I loved all those guys, but I also loved Sherlock Holmes. I loved M.R. James. And then I went to university and, and you know, you, you're kind of forced to read the classics a little bit. But I do remember discovering The Great Gatsby and, and being just blown away by it. And I suppose that was the one book more than anything else that has stayed with me all these years. One of the many things that I love about doing this podcast is, and you know yourself in terms of any conversations you've ever had about books, it's such a subjective thing because one of the recent episodes that was broadcast was uh, a girl called Nicola Smith, who's a journalist, and in the category, which we'll go to later, of the book that she couldn't be paid to read again, it was The Great Gatsby. Yeah. <laughs> but she did say, she says, I know people will be listening to this going, no. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's a curious one. Um, I'm actually reading, uh, do you know what, I started this week just, I should really reread that again, it's been a while since I read it, maybe it's not as good as I remember it, and I sat down, and I'm only about halfway through it at the moment, I sat down and started reading again, and at the beginning I was thinking, oh, oh, maybe it's not quite as good as I recall, but then I'm now 140 pages into it and something like that, and I'm just loving it, I think it just still seems to me this vivid, thrilling, kind of heady concoction of words, I, I just adore it, I think it's got a a real sense of New York in the 1920s. I'm not very interested in the plot. It doesn't really, plots don't really, aren't that important to me. Um, I just love the writing of it. I just think it, it just glides. It just glides. When I, when I was interviewing Nicola and I did a wee bit of research into the book, and it was interesting. It, it wasn't an instant bestseller. It wasn't instantly acclaimed as a classic. It did take a wee bit of time from when it was published. I think it was in the 40s it started to really take off in, in that popularity. And then over a period of time, it's just been generally regarded as a classic of 20th century yeah, American literature. Yes, but I think it's still, I think, Paul, it still has this kind of, there's a suspicion about it. There's a suspicion about it. It just seems a bit too easy for people. You know, they read it and think, yeah, that's, it's all surface. But I, I think it's more than that. Some writers... And, and the ones that spring to mind, Roddy Doyle is a good example, Elmore Leonard, the crime writer. And it's so easy to read them that you think, well, there's no work involved in this at all. And I think Gatsby's a little bit like that. It just feels so easy to read that you think, oh, there's, there's nothing here. And then you look at it again, you realise, God, this is astonishing what he's doing. You know, the use of language and, and it's lots of dialogue in Gatsby. But then there are these kind of quite lyric passages, most famously the last couple of pages, which is one of the great endings of, of literature, I think. The fact that it's so easy to read, I think some people are suspicious of it. There is that there is that connection between difficulty and meaning, I suppose. The more difficult thing is, the more important it must be. And I, I'm not, I, I don't adhere to that at all. So it's interesting when you, t- when you talk about somebody like Roddy Doyle, and what always fascinates me about a lot of his books is it's they're very dialogue-driven. And mm. as you say, it can seem effortless, and it's almost like he's just recording a conversation like you and I have, but there's a real talent to make something seem that easy 
without the need for any sort of superfluous description. He tells you everything you need to know in that story just by how the characters talk and what they say. Very much so. Gatsby isn't like that. Gatsby's, you know, there's lots of description and the description is just joyous. One of the other things I love about it is that it's a, it's a New York novel. And when I was when I was younger, New York fascinated me. I have been uh, once and wasn't that bothered about it. But, but the place as a, you know, as a kind of place in my head has always been, you know, thrilling to me. So, and you know, there's this paragraph here. I began to like New York the racy adventurous feel of it at night and the satisfaction that the constant flicker of men and women and machines gives to the restless eye. I mean, and just even that sentence just feels like, you know, that's exactly what a city, the thrill of a city is. It's just the motion and people and, and noise and all those things about it. And I just think he's great at that. He's just great at just catching something in a, in a fleeting sentence. Um, the trick is to keep reading I read when I was 16, first of all. I was really, really lucky in that as I was kind of putting away the, the kind of the teenage books and getting interested in adult books, it kind of coincided with this massive flourishing in contemporary Scottish writing. So I was 13 when Trainspotting came out. And then after Trainspotting, everybody wanted to be publishing Scottish writers. So as I was kind of late teens, I mean, Janice Galloway, the trick is to keep reading was already out. But um, yeah, um, Ali Smith, A.L. Kennedy you know, Alistair Gray getting reprinted and my mum was bringing all these books into the house and I was just devouring them. Um, but the trick is to keep breathing really, really stuck with me at the time because I was a very dramatic, slightly depressed, probably for not much of a reason, 16-year-old and I, the angst appealed to me. But I keep coming back to that one again and again. And what it, what it does that's so amazing is it makes ordinary, the kind of very quotidian ordinariness of, of women's lives, this sort of she makes kind of high art out of um, laying out an arrangement of biscuits to show your social worker that you're normal or you're, you're kind of you're sat, getting felt up by your boss and your Saturday job in the bookies, this kind of thing. And also this sort of this taking on board of depression and kind of articulating it from a kind of disenfranchised working middle class women's point of view. Um, she's a working class woman who's kind of working as a, as a drama teacher. She's kind of the first of her family to go to, to university, I think. And um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a complete explosion on the page as well. You know, I mean, she just shunts the, the words and the phrases around into the margins, kind of express how she's feeling when actual normal sentence structure won't, won't do. It's, it's kind of, it's sort of this avant-garde in places as well. It's kind of, and that, that she's using such quotidian subject matter to do that. I, just, I still think it's extraordinary. Um, so yeah, that is a book I, re I reread all the time and it's, it's really, really stuck with me. And it was the, the thing that I've always taken from it is that the, the tiny, tiny little pieces of life can be, you know, uh, expressed can be that sort of important to understanding your character and understanding your person and other people, really. Because um, one, one of the previous guests on the podcast, she'd actually chosen, I think it was one of part one of Janice Galloway's memoirs as, as one of her favourite books and then said just from that book it's amazing to see what she can through to become this extraordinary writer she said it was fascinating because it was kind of giving an insight into her as a person as a writer and then obviously she knows her novels etc. I absolutely adore Janice Galloway I first um, interviewed her when I was working as a journalist at the List magazine when This Is Not About Me came out which I think must have been 13 years ago I think it was about 2000, no, maybe 2008, 2009, something like that. 
and I was incredibly nervous. <laughs> and uh, Granta, her publisher, got her a big room at the, the Scotsman Hotel in Edinburgh. And she was seated right at the end of this immensely grand hall with all these kind of weird pornographic coffee tables around her. And you had to sort of approach her like you were approaching the queen up the centre of the room. But since then, I've kind of met her more as a writer. And then we both did a lot of, for Muriel Sparks' centenary, we both did a lot of events together because we're both deep steeped in Muriel Spark. And since then, she's become a friend and, and it's wonderful. I get these lovely emails from her. She knitted my, my littlest child a, a teddy bear. And uh, yeah, I got to I got to guest program a slot at the first the first ever uh, a strand of the first ever Paisley Book Festival in February, and um, I got to have Janice on, and I got to fill this you know the whole of Paisley Arts Centre with Janice Galloway fans who were just overjoyed to meet her, and I think she was kind of she was she was a bit sort of confused as to why people would still want to be coming and hearing from her, and I, I think I resisted saying because you're an actual queen. <laughs> <laughs> That must be really nice. As you say, you, you start off, you only know her through her words, through her books, mm-hmm. but that, that evolves through your professional life. Yeah. And then, it, and then it takes it into your personal life where you, you develop this friendship, which again is just obviously must be a great side effect of, of the work that you've done. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's wonderful. She's actually coming round for, um, for tea to see, to see my wee boys on Thursday afternoon. I, I can't quite get my head around it still, to be honest. I think if, you know, there's there's a few things I'd want to zoom back in time and let me, we 16-year-old me in 1996, <laughs> and that's definitely one of them. Poor Things is always the Alistair Gray book that I recommend to people first that haven't heard of Gray. I've spent about half of my life overall in Scotland, but anytime I'm out of Scotland, whether I'm traveling or doing book events or just chatting to non-booky folk who will say, oh, didn't you do that thing about that fella? Who is he again? <laughs> you know, people that might not necessarily have be steeped in grey folklore or know the visual arts or know his place in Scottish literature. If they're just saying, oh, well, what, what should I read by him? Is he good? Oh, he's good. Right. What should I read? Poor Things is always the one I go for because I feel it has... It's got immediacy and it's accessible, but it also has many of the elements that are Grey's strongest suits. So playfulness with form and design, just vivacity. It's a response to a number of Victorian stories that are recognisable. It's kind of a, a Glasgow Frankenstein. And it's also got the nods to so many other Victorian novels. It's pacey, it's funny, and it's got a wonderful heroine. It's stories inside stories inside stories, but anybody could read it. And it's great fun. Whereas, although my love for Lanark is huge, I wouldn't recommend Lanark as a way in to anybody. I mean, if you love poor things and if you've read several others and you know a little bit, then I would recommend it because I just feel it needs a different kind of attention and patience. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's hard going, hard going. That's okay to say, you know, it should yeah. be hard going. But um, I always think poor things is a great way in. And it was, I was bought a hardback edition for my 21st birthday. And I didn't actually study poor things as an undergrad, I studied Lanark in a module called Modern Scottish Literature at Strathclyde. That is where I first discovered many of the great 20th century Glaswegian writers. There was something about Gray's simplicity with language and clarity, but playfulness that hugely appealed to me. But it wasn't just that, it was about, it was about the doubt in the work, I felt. Although it was political work, it wasn't dogmatic. It felt like it was humble and it accepted multiple possibly conflicting versions of the world. It's difficult to describe, but I felt like I 
there was something in it that really appealed to me because I'm interested in writing about doubt and I'm interested in, in doubt as a concept anyway. And so it was Gray that I really latched onto rather than, say, Kelman or anybody, Leonard or anyone else. And I then just read everything and absolutely felt head over heels for it. Because it's funny when you, you touched earlier on, on, you know, the fact that maybe contemporary Scottish kids should maybe be learning more about Scottish literature and being reading more. And I, I came through Scottish education at a time where we didn't. And I first came to Alistair Gray, I ended up going and doing some night classes at, up at Glasgow University just on 20th century Scottish literature. It was just a way to kind of keep my brain ticking over. And so you would get a book, you would, we would read it, and then the, the following week we would discuss it in class. And it was great just to get back into that way of reading a book but trying to analyse it and then getting other people's thoughts. We did Lanark over two classes because of, you know, just the complexity of it. But it really helped me because I think just reading, as you touched on, just reading it myself, I think I might have toiled a bit, but just being able to go in and have somebody speak about it and then either you voice what you thought or even your, your questions, your doubts in it, it made me appreciate the book. I still think, although up here people would know Alistair, I still think he's maybe underappreciated in terms of, you know, the wider Scottish readership. I think Poor Things is just that, as you described there, which I think it's a brilliant novel that maybe people don't know as, as well. People may maybe be able to say, yeah, he wrote, he was a guy that wrote Lanark. They might not be able to list these other books, but Poor Things, I think, is just a brilliant novel uh, that more people should know about, more people should be reading. It's right up there. I mean, it's interesting. I think the longer time goes on, the more that Alistair is closely associated with Lanark. You often see him cited as the Lanark author you know, in articles about him. And although he does definitely have an international reputation, and that book was widely translated, in fact, Poor Things was a big commercial success at the time. It won the Whitbread Prize, uh, which was a big deal. Jonathan Coe was on the uh, judging panel that year. There was even an American tour that he did in the early 90s. It was a, it was a book that was commercially successful, as well as prize winning, and it did have an impact at the time. And the book that you've chosen is Clarissa by Samuel Richardson. It is it's enormous. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's some over a thousand pages long. And it's the first novel apparently written in English. And it's all letters. It's a, a history novel. And, it's, and it basically just tracks the story of the uh, ruin of a young woman by the charismatic Mr. Lovelace, who sort of woos her and then steals her away and then destroys her, basically. So I came across that when I was at university and I wasn't uh, a tremendous success at university. It was very much sort of in my own, own head. I had actually failed one course I started off doing zoology and sort of failed it and so thought well I better do English and uh, philosophy so I moved over to that and when we got our reading list for English uh, it was really traditional it was at Liverpool University really traditional syllabus and I just you know like all these people like Dryden and Pope and I mean just it was just a sea of stuff that was incomprehensible to me basically and then they had a supplementary reading list of you know if you've got time have a look at this. So I looked at that one because I thought that's bound to be more interesting than the one I've got. And Clarissa was on it. So, so I just you know, picked it up and oh my God, I was just, that was six months of my life gone. 
I did almost nothing else apart from read this book. I was absolutely glued. There's something about letters. And I, I noticed on your website, you talk about letters as well and just how important and powerful they are. And that was a time when people wrote letters. I was a massive letter writer and it was a lifeline a lot, a lot of times. I used to keep carbons of my own letters. I mean, I just had, I, I was just, letters were one of the purest forms of communication. I just thought if I could be a, a, alone on a desert island and just be able to write letters to people, I, I'd be much happier than having to actually interact with them in real life. Do you know the sad thing about, I mean, I totally agree with you in a lot of pieces, it's called the lost art of letter writing because, you know, people texting and messaging and, and obviously destroying the English language in the process. And I just, there was something about writing a letter, but also receiving a letter. So I, either, either way was always joyful. So I, I, I chose like six friends. I hadn't told them. So I wrote each of them a letter. And it was just all about how, it's quite sad, this lost art of letter writing, how we all remembered when you started to get letters or you wrote letters. And, and then each of them was a wee bit personalised as well. So every one of them got back in touch and said, that was so lovely. It was such a nice surprise, handwritten letter. But none of them wrote back to me. They just texted me or phoned me. And I thought, point crazy. Isn't that oh, such a shame that, isn't it? It was, it was quite sad, actually. Yeah, and I, you wonder how people will ever really compile biographies anymore and how how you really can keep track of past lives now, now, now that it's all just so, so easy to lose. I mean, it is, you know, you think you've got it, but then your laptop busts, you don't know how to, you haven't backed up, and that's it, it's all gone. You think of the number of times where people send angry emails or instant texts or not even angry but just I, there's, there's some thought put into to what you're going to put in a letter because you're thinking about what you want to say but you're also thinking about the person that's going to receive it there's just something so personal about absolutely. that form that I think I, I absolutely agree with you I think for a whole variety of reasons it's it's a shame that we've lost that it's such a powerful way to tell a story as well. I mean, I, you know, I'd have thought you, you'd think, oh gosh, it's going to be all kind of broken up and fragmented. But coming back to Clar Clarissa, it's, like it, it's such an early novel and so enormous and yet absolutely coherent and only letters, no commentary, no nothing, just hundreds and hundreds of these letters. And uh, I was absolutely enthralled by it and neglected everything else. And it, and it, yeah, it's really stayed with me just as, in fact, I think, you know, when I get the time, I, I wouldn't mind having another, having another go at it because it's just so, such a powerful story, you know, a very old story and kind of a, the oldest story of all, but yeah, just resonated with me so much. And I guess now with the time that's passed, it's almost a sort of, yeah, sadness for the loss of that because it didn't feel strange or odd then that you would, you know, believe you could write a novel just as letters because we were all doing that anyway. Now it would seem, it make it seem even more kind of old-fashioned, I suppose, in, in a way. Although, although maybe not, I don't know. I don't know. I think it ought to have a modern readership. I don't know if people read it in universities anymore. You've mentioned two. One is Trainspotting by Irvin Wilson. The other one's American Cycle by Brett Easton Ellis. Aye, I, I couldn't decide between these two because I read them roughly at the same time. I think it was maybe 18. And they were sort of contemporaneous of each other. I think American Cycle was 1991 and Trainspotting was maybe 92. So they were, they were of the same moment. And they're very, very different books. But they both had the effect on me of uh, making me feel that literature was something that could be quite dangerous. Because I'd always been a reader, 
But up until that point, I'd never read anything that I considered dangerous, by which it, it carried an air of threat and menace and rebellion and anarchy and broke so many rules. Both of those books, there's no, there's no precedent for them, really. Well, certainly it wasn't for me. Uh, they're both completely original. I mean, you could say there was James Kilman before there was Irvin Welsh, but it hadn't been harnessed in a, in a way that could make sense to maybe somebody 18-year-old who up until that point was... I was probably in a prolonged Stephen King phase. Stephen King, Clive Barker, wasn't it horror fiction when I was a teenager? Maybe because I was seeking that sense of danger, but I'd never experienced anything like American Psycho or Train Spotting. They were like punk rock. I mean, in terms of like Train Spotting, because one of the things that always sticks in my mind is I, I, I can't remember if they put it on the cover at one point saying it was at one point it was the most shoplifted book in Edinburgh as a kind of badge <laughs> a badge of honour but do you think also the language of you know, obviously the style of it but just because it speaks in a language that, that's yours that you understand exactly aye as a Scot and as somebody who grew up working class I'd never read a book that even remotely resembled the life that I saw outside the window on the scheme where I grew up literature and Reality were two completely separate things. In fact, I went to literature to get away from reality, hence reading fantasy fiction and sci-fi and horror. You know, it was an escape from reality. But Chainspotting was the first book where I felt reality and fiction merge and realised that depicting the world in in a way that's accurate and authentic and realistic and unvarnished and uncensored was an incredibly exciting thing to do. And that was a complete fork in the road for me as a as a writer but also as a as a person as a scot you know as it's probably the first time i've ever felt what you could probably call maybe a class consciousness because the class that i came through just wasn't really represented in, in culture or if it was it was the butt of jokes you know you, you used to hear in scottish working class accents used in comedy but never uh, with a seriousness of purpose uh, and that was a complete revelation to me it was like a bomb going off you know nothing was the same after after train spotting um, and I think that was also true of the culture. Train spotting was a fork in the road. It created, partly created the, the Scotland that we're in, I think. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that. Because I always wonder if it, it validated a lot of people, you know, or their aspirations of saying, you know, that way, as you say, maybe the idea of being a writer, of being involved in literature, even if it was aspirational, maybe felt unattainable. And suddenly Evan Welsh in, in that book showed the possibility that it was possible to write yeah. a book your life, your culture, your background, your country, and it would be taken seriously. Yeah, exactly. Aye, and it was a global bestseller. So you think, hang on a minute, if he can write this book that becomes an enormous commercial hit and is taken seriously as a work of literature, and he's writing about the culture that he came for, I can do the same. That's allowed, that's permissible. And also it persuades the industry that these things are permissible. Because after Irving Welsh, obviously there was a hole opened in the 90s and I managed to sneak in just at the end when Boy, Boy Racers I mean there's no doubt in my mind I would never have found my way towards writing a book like Boy Racers had Trainspotting no existed but it created that moment where Scottish working class fiction was being read by people who didn't normally even read books and I took that for granted after a while but then you realise how that, what a rare thing that is you sometimes see it happening um, every so often maybe 10 years a writer will break through but it's a very very rare thing and necessary because I always wonder as well, for somebody like Irvin Welsh, he would have written that book because that's what he wanted to write. But then one of the byproducts is, as you say, people like yourself 
suddenly think that's what I can do and, and it gives you that confidence to, to the pen down on the paper but you then become mm-hmm. a published author on your own right and you know expands that the whole Scottish literature the outlook and, and the people who mm-hmm. can get involved in it and the stories they can tell I'm mm-hmm. sure there must be a wee part of them that thinks I'm quite happy that I helped and that one wee tiny wee bit in doing that well I hope so you know I think that's uh, something he should be aware of if, if he's no I would imagine he is I imagine people have told him that quite a lot I mean I told yeah. him it for a start, so it's probably the first time he's heard of it, but I think a lot of us uh, writers of my generation have got an enormous amount to thank him for. Once he's heard this on the podcast, then he'll definitely know. Because <laughs> <laughs> also it helped, I think, Trainspotting became, obviously it's such a, an iconic book, but then obviously the film in its own right mm-hmm. becomes, and just cements it in our culture. That's right, it magnified it. I mean, there's a whole generation of people, British people, I think it's probably faith, uh, fair to say, not just Scottish people, but when you hear the opening chords of Born Slippy by Underworld, there's a nostalgic rush that takes you back to the 90s that's so powerful that it's, you almost disappear backwards into it. And yeah. reality, the present day just fades away and suddenly there you are, you're 18 again, hanging about with your mates, you've just seen Trainspotting and you're young and free. I don't know if you've seen Trainspotting too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it's about. It plays on that idea of nostalgia. But in order to achieve that nostalgia, the original explosion back in the 90s had to have been incredibly powerful, and it was. And your favourite book from that time is The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. This one was hard as well, because I so many I liked from my teens. I think I might have talked about this before with maybe on one of my podcasts, but I, I don't remember if I understood the book <laughs> when I read it. Um, but I just loved the feeling. Like, it's a very complicated, it's very existential, the book. I think I read it maybe when I was around 17 or something. It's about a Czech surgeon. He's a bachelor. He has a wife and kid, but he's he's left them and he's sort of, he's searching for lightness. So the whole kind of thing is about lightness and darkness and or heaviness and versus lightness and how to live feeling very light and free and um, it seems to do that you just have lots of affairs and you don't, you don't commit that seems, that's what I remember as the main thing you don't, you don't commit but then it's also like obviously there's a plot of the, the Prague Spring and, and Soviet soldiers and all that kind of thing is going on as well I don't know if I got everything in it at the time but I, I do remember it just it stayed with me and I loved the title The Unbearable Lightness of Being I just thought it was such a good title it felt a bit magical I think I was reading Herman Hess at the same time and I didn't really understand that either, but I loved it. I, there's something, I felt like I was on the cusp of understanding it or something. Yeah, so it's about, I think, Tomas, would you say? It's his name, Tomas and Sabina and Teresa. So Teresa is his sort of, the woman he, he falls in love with and kind of is trying to commit to. And then Sabina is his mistress and she also has this kind of lightness that he, that he has and they kind of both have that similar, the idea of just, you only live once and you need to just, Seek out your feel, follow your feelings where where they where they occur. Similar to your first choice, it was a it was a book that was turned into a film as well. And I know the title. And if there was a quiz question on who wrote the book, I could tell you the answer. But I've not read the book. I've not I've not seen the film. Uh, have you yeah. Have you watched the film as well? Yeah. Um. I mean, I saw it years ago. Daniel Day Lewis, Juliet Binoche. The film. I think I I don't remember when that was made. I watched it probably years after I read the book, and it kind of. I think I was struck by, oh, there's actually a plot. <laughs> like I didn't, I think when I'd read, it, I didn't feel like there was a plot. But yeah, I, I mean, the film is nice as well. I do like Daniel Day-Lewis, so that was, that was that great. Yeah. 
Interestingly, when I was when I was just checking about the book before we started the podcast, apparently Kundera didn't like the film, and he oh, said, really? "Yeah, he said it had he felt it had little to do with the, the spirit of the novel, the characters." So apparently, after that, he refused to let any of these other books be adapted for the oh, screen. God, you'd hate to be that director. <laughs> that <did> that. <laughs> I think you kind of have to see it as a separate creative enterprise making a film because you're going to upset someone, you know. Yeah. I think if you're a writer, I think you have to kind of almost take the money and just accept, unless you're writing the screenplay yeah. yourself, you just accept that, as you say, it's a, it's a separate art form. Yeah, and it's really hard. How do you convey everything in the book? Like I watched last night um, the, the Charlie Kaufman's film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. It's really enjoyable. It's really strange. And then at the end, I realised it was a book and then that made more sense because I felt like it's really, it's really, it's really arty. It's very... Um, unusual and really unsettling and I didn't fully get it but I really I really enjoyed it I enjoyed every scene but I think if, now knowing that it's a book I'm like okay it would probably I think something's it's very hard to translate into film thanks for listening to the read all about it podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it you can get in touch via twitter at read all about 20 on instagram at read all about it podcast or you can send an email to read all about it at paulcuddehy.com If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.